Welcome to the Basilea Hollywood Podcast, a community of friends committed to the message and practice of Jesus and His kingdom. Merry Christmas. So we're not especially good at um, doing like all of the typical, stereo, the stereotypical Christmas moves, um, which I is gonna I'm gonna follow suit since there's that theme, and I'm <laughs> we're doing Advent, but uh, yeah, that's a good thing, but. I'm actually going to talk about Advent in a slightly, from a slightly different angle. Um, and first, I'm going to pray for us. I think that's important, all of us. Lord God, I thank you so much that from the moment each one of us arrived on this earth, you had your eyes on us and your love pursued us to this very moment and will pursue us in the future. Father, this is a season of remembrance. And I pray that you would hover over our minds and work in our spirits to cause us to remember your faithfulness, not only towards humanity in the person and work and arrival of Jesus Christ as an infant, but also in the very personal ways that you pursue and love us. Would we remember your faithfulness in our lives during this time? And I pray that it would warm us to what's real in this life, concrete, and to be relied on. Thank you, Jesus, that you can do this. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So um, we have three scriptures. Chris, do we have those three slides? Okay. So what I'm going to do is um, I'm going to ask someone to volunteer to read the first section of scriptures. Do we have a volunteer? You want to do one? Okay, come on. All right, read this one. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come and has redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through holy prophets long ago. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. To show mercy to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. The oath he swore to our father Abraham. To rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear. In holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High. For you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins, because the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven, to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. Luke 1, 68, 79. All right, this section is called the Song of Zechariah. And we're going to kind of cycle around this through a number of different angles. First, I want to think about 
this particular phrase that's used a lot during this time of year, a light has dawned on the people sitting in darkness. And that comes from this section where the context is that Zechariah was a priest who um, was performing his duty of going into the Holy of Holies and lighting incense and doing various sort of ritualistic activities in the Holy of Holies. And in the temple, um, the Holy of Holies is a place that you had to prepare yourself to even enter. And um, it's quite an elaborate set of rituals. So Zechariah um, went into this Holy of Holies, and there he had a visitation with an angel. Angel announces that he's going to be having a child. And uh, if this sounds familiar to you, there's a reason. And because it's an echo of an Old Testament tendency that uh, Zechariah says, well, my, my wife is quite old, and it's not likely that we will be having children. And if you remember Abram, this is a, almost an exact echo of what had happened in the covenant moment. Um, and so the angel says, well, I've said so. This is a message directly from God. Because you have unbelief, you're going to be struck mute. God can do that. Um, and so Zechariah emer emerges from the Holy of Holies. And the thing is about the Holy of Holies, um, a lot of time priests when they went in to do the rituals, would have a rope tied around their ankle because the expectation was that it was so dangerous to get so close to God that you could be struck dead um, and you might, your body might have to be dragged out. So there's this recognition of holiness being fearful but also quite wonderful. So Zechariah has this encounter. Lo and behold, against all expectation, a child is born. And... Um, what was unusual about this circumstance is that Zechariah was told by the angel to name him John, and this was against tradition. Typically, you named your son after yourself. And so, of course, when the moment comes to name the child in obedience, having learned his lesson, Zechariah says, okay, we well, named John. And in that moment, there's a release of his muteness and, muteness, and this is the song that comes out of his mouth, the first recorded words for a sense of context. Now, this idea of a light has dawned to shine on those living in darkness in the shadow of death to guide their feet into a path of peace. I want to talk about light for a little while and the qualities of light and the qualities of darkness. Um, the first slide, visual slide, if, it, if I could get that. Dun, dun, dun. Okay, well, we'll wait for it. I actually want to talk about the history of, this may seem a little bit strange, but of, oh, it's small and off-center, street lights, um, and why they are so common in cityscapes. And, you know, with the invention of electric, the street lights were quite, early on in the history of cities. So the first ones were in, um, they were in Athens, I think, public torches. Um, and with electric lights, they started to be used because a lot of times, like especially in London, cities past sunset were not only dangerous, they were very difficult to navigate. And so we're, there was a, a kind of recognition that at night cities simply shut down. And you can imagine in wintertime, like that 
really slows down the life of, of people in a massive urban environment. There was also, can we go to the next one? Maybe it's slightly larger and, okay. I think these are some really great designs. This one's in, actually in San Diego, one of the first street lamps in the United States and the West Coast. Um, so it's just massive. But um, at any rate, uh, there were these people called Link Boys, young boys that were um, paid to bring you from one part of the city to another. So they had almost this like tactile sense of the city, even in the dark. And it, it just cost you, uh, I think, like a farthing to pay one of them. And they would navigate you through the dark streets. It was still dangerous. Um, but once electric lights started to become more common in cities, then um, crime dropped, and uh, there was this ability that people had to be able to figure out their way through the city. Um, then, uh, let's see what's the next slide. There's various cool designs. Um, but I also want to point out that there's... On the other side, so light may be able to provide for us the ability to navigate and a certain amount of safety, but there's also psychological effects on the other side of darkness, right? So there's been various um, studies done on the effects of prolonged darkness. So particular, in particular, prolonged darkness creates depression. So there was a study done on rats where they were kept in utter darkness for six weeks. And what happened to them is they actually started to experience um, brain damage in regions known to be underactive in humans that have depression. So the areas that create serotonin and dopamine actually started to die in their brains. Um, and then there's also this strange neurological effect called the autokinetic effect. So if you're in extreme darkness, you you do start to hallucinate, but if there's even one sign, like one point of light, and there's no other reference points at all, that point of light appears to move, and it's this hallucination that happens because you don't have any other reference point. So the ways that we perceive reality is always in context, right? So if there's total sensory deprivation and there's only one point of light, then you have no way of grounding it. So this effect was first noticed in um, 1799, and it's called the autokinetic effect. And so perception occurs relative to some reference point, and the first man that noticed this was a man named Alexander von Humboldt. Um, and he noticed it in the stars, and he called the phenomenon Sternswachen, I think that's how you pronounce it, which is the idea of swinging stars. So he, he had no idea, like there was this strange phenomenon that took a while for him to figure out that in darkness you, you have the hallucination of movement. And I think that that's just interesting in, when you think about light. It helps us anchor things um, to know their relationship to other things, right? Okay. So then another psychological study was done relatively recently, 2010, um, where people, it, people were put in various environments, two rooms. One was dim, one was dark. And uh, they were given complex tests to take. And they had to self... Um, 
rate like their answers so they could give um, self-report their own answers. So let's see. Participants entered a room as a group, took a test consisting of 20 difficult problems, and they were also given an envelope with an answer key to the test and money for a bonus. So participants were asked to score their own performance on the test, pay themselves 50 cents for each correct answer, and they were to write the answers that they got correct on the answer key and take the amount of money that they were allowed for their performance. As you might imagine, in the dim room, people cheated by almost 60% more, and people in the well-lit room cheated only about 20%. Um, a second study showed that people were also more selfish in the dark. So in this study, people were given either dark sunglasses to wear in a well-lit room, or they were given clear glasses to wear. As a part of the study, people played the dictator game in which they were given $6 and were asked to split that money with an anonymous partner. They were told that they could keep as much as $6 if they wanted to, but they could give away as much as they wanted. And people gave away over a dollar less when they were wearing dark sunglasses than when they were wearing clear ones. So it's pretty, pretty interesting, isn't it? So I think that when we hear this phrase, unto us a child is born and a light has dawned in the dark, to a people sitting in darkness, there's all kinds of implications for how we even um, reflexively respond to the presence of light. Um, we're made for the light. We behave at our best in the light. Um, and so we, we need it desperately. Um, and the Song of Zechariah tells us that. So... The birth of Jesus apparently is this bringing of full-on, unobscured sunrise. But it's not as though God hasn't been speaking throughout history. We have the voice of the, the beginning tendrils of the light in the voice of the prophets. And we hear about that from Zephaniah. What's the next slide, by the way? I'm interested. Next. Oh, light. Psychological test. Good for the brain. <laughs> um, I would like that light bulb. Um, I'm going to wait on that one for a second. Let's go back to the previous one. Oh, there we go. Um, so the prophets. If we take a one little section of what we read here... Verse 70 says, As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, he spoke to us salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy toward our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. So throughout history, the prophets have been speaking. And they bring not only tidings of joy, but they also bring with them holy fear. Because light, in the most familiar form, the form of the sun, is both a wonderful and life-giving thing, but it's also quite dangerous. I mean, think about the temperatures on the surface of the sun, and it's nothing that we could endure. And one of the selected readings for this week in Advent is Malachi 3, 1 through 4, and I'm going to read that for you right now. And this is also what the Advent of light means for us. 
okay? I'm sending my messenger to prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Indeed, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand it when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver, and he will purify the descendants of Levi and refine them like gold and silver until they present offerings to the Lord that are righteous. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in former years. So refining silver and gold is not an easy process. It's painful. Um, you have to heat the ore to incredible temperatures, and over and over again, you have to do it. Um, and you have to skim off the impurities. So it's difficult, dangerous work, and it's transformative to the ore itself. And the idea of this light dawning is both incredibly joyful, but also the recognition that it will cost us a great deal. It will refine. So light brings, it with the, brings with it the recognition of the state of things. You can actually see what's impure. And therefore, the need for justice becomes much more acute. Dawn is both to be dreaded and desired, and that's true justice. And so though when light first breaks, there's relief, primarily because there's, a, there's also an ability to navigate, an ability to navigate morally and literally. So justice and right moral navigation depend on the full disclosure of light, right? You can't have justice or a sense of what's right without knowing what's happening, without being able to see. So in many ways, the idea of Advent is not only that a savior has come and there's, there's this kind of theological way that's opened up, a light has dawned, but also in our own hearts. And this is where individually coming to terms with Jesus is a light that dawns in your own heart and helps you to see what's pure and impure, what the lay of the land is, right? And the prophets in the Old Testament were a voice of conscience, a, a, a source of light for the nation of Israel. And there's a quote here by Abram Heschel, whom I like a lot and have been reading a lot lately, um, that talks about the kind of sensitivity that light can give us. So he says, indeed, the sort of crimes and even the amount of delinquency that fill the prophets of Israel with dismay do not go beyond that which we regard as normal. In other words, kind of negligible crimes, like typical ingredients of social dynamics. To us, a single act of injustice, cheating in business, exploitation of the poor, is a slight. But to the prophets, it was a disaster. To us, injustice as injurious to the welfare of people, but to the prophets, it was a death blow to existence. To us, it's a mere episode, but to them, a catastrophe and a threat to the world. So when light dawns, the real estimation of things is known. So 
the visitation of God that's talked about in Advent is not only this rendering of what's actually going on around us, but I think it's also important to remember that it's not anything that we instigated. There's a visitation of God, and this stands, this is what makes Christianity unique in a lot of ways, is that God bends low and visits us when we weren't looking for it. And so many times you can, and again, the analogy of sunrise is the same. None of us create sunrise, it visits us. You know, like we can't do special ritualistic dances and make it come faster. It comes, it comes on its own time and it comes in good time. And that is a distinction about the visitation of God in the form of Jesus. In God's time, there was a visitation. Um, and there's also an incremental aspect to the coming of Jesus, right? So we even look at these various songs that you find in um, kind of like the announcement of Jesus. So first you have the song of Mary, right? When Elizabeth and Mary meet each other, Elizabeth's in utero John leaps for joy and Mary bursts into this long peon of praise for God seeing her and helping her to bring Messiah. And if you think about that, that song of praise is deeply personal. Mary was really young. She was unmarried. She was in a really vulnerable spot being pregnant outside of wedlock. And a lot of people misunderstood that for sure. But she was able to recognize the personal blessing of being able to bring Messiah into the world. And the w angle of that particular song is deeply personal. But then you have the song of Zechariah, which is more of a national song, so talking about Israel as being redeemed. But then you have the song of Simeon. And Simeon, if you remember, was in the temple and when he saw Jesus right before he was being um, circumcised, he burst into a song that's more about a national, an inner, a universal sort of dawning of the light. He says, this light has dawned for the Gentiles as well. And here he is in the, in the court of the temple in Israel, and he's able to see with his prophetic vision that Jesus is for all. So it kind of incrementally moves from one to the next to the next. Mary the nation of Israel to all in these songs of praise. So there's kind of this beautiful fanning out of the dawn of the daylight, right? So, and what's amazing about this daylight is that it's done in absolute humility, right? Over and over again, we hear in Christmas about the baby in the manger. Isn't that, isn't that cute? Isn't it sort of darling? But the truth is it was, it was an incredibly humble circumstance. It was quite difficult. Um, and in some ways you can say sunrise is similar. It always happens at the edges of the world. And in this case, it happened in the edge of society. So you have Mary, who's powerless and young. You have Elizabeth, who's old and barren. John, the harbinger of Jesus, is practically starving and he's in the desert. And you have Simeon, old and desperate. Or he's, he's old and separate from society. He's living in the temple. His life is kind of outside of the values of 
civilization, you know? And to these people sitting in the darkness who lack power, God's light seems to visit them first. To those who are desperate, who are barren, broken, vulnerable. And if you think about it, Israel itself was once a formless mob of former slaves milling around in the desert. And during that time in particular, God made some of his most amazing promises to Israel. And he attached his solidarity to Israel at a time when she was absolutely the weakest and the most unpromising. And there's just, I don't know, there's this pattern that God has. He's almost reflexively drawn to us when we have the least, when we're the most broken or powerless or unable to save ourselves. And he came to the earth in a moment like that. The thing is, those kinds of moments are perpetual. It's kind of always desperate, isn't it? I mean, you don't need to spend much time looking at the news right now. It's always the darkest moment, and we need dawn all the time. And what's amazing about this dawn is that it will come even before we can have belief or before we can even have righteousness, before we can merit it at all. This dawn doesn't seem to depend on our suitability or right response. Sarah laughed at the thought of pregnancy. Zachariah didn't believe. God still did it. And again, it's that idea of the visitation of God. His plans will come to pass. And there's a kind of deep peace that we can have that though we aren't suitable and though we don't do things right, God's plans will come to pass. At the same time, obedience and belief are our way to actually participate in the goodness of God's plans, right? So obedience and belief are intertwined and required if we ourselves are going to partake in the full blessing of God's actions, his miracles and redemption. So Zachariah is released from his muteness and filled with the Holy Spirit only after he resists the pressure of cultural norms, naming his child after himself, and says, no, I will obey God, appear to be weird and misunderstood, name him John, and then I will be filled with the Holy Spirit. He didn't, that was a gift of God in that act of obedience. And he's given his ability to speak back. And what are the first things that he says? This, it flows out of him and he's filled with joy. And he's participating in the forward motion of God's plans because given that opportunity to sit in the corner mutely and think about what he's not believing for nine months, he responds rightly. So God in his mercy and grace sometimes just gives us time out, (laughs) you know, so that we can get it straight, you know. And that's also part of an Advent or Christmas gift, Maybe a hard one sometimes, you know? Um, But probably the best 
kinds of gifts are those ones. So if you even look back on your life, I can think of moments in my own life where there were whole years that I needed to get close to God in certain specific ways or get over certain areas of unbelief in my life. And God gave me that space. And at the end of that time, you're able to participate in God's plans in your in your using your life. Okay. So there's this idea of the dawn of Jesus and these kinds of deeper gifts that are sometimes quite difficult and maybe not deep and deeply personal and maybe not um I don't know, you know, the seasonal tropes that the Santa Claus, the reindeer, the... Oh, there's John, wild-eyed John. I think the other slides were out of... Yeah, they were out of order. So I'm sorry about that. They were in order in my little presentation, but I, something seems to have been lost in translation. Um... I want to talk about the contrast between the invention of the typical Christmas light, which kind of represents all the commercial tendencies of this season. And it was the first electric Christmas light was invented by Edison Company. And if you go back to that black and white photo, that was literally, that was the first demonstration of the electric Christmas light. And uh, this Edison company would do all of these stunts to create more commercial um, viability, right? So they had done some pretty terrible things. I mean, one of the things they did is just sobering. They electrocuted an elephant to show how powerful electricity is. Um, but at any rate, one of their stunts was this electric Christmas light. And then, so... It immediately started selling a lot of them and you know their company kind of continued to they were always doing fine but to such a point that you have the next slide um, where this is Christmas <laughs> um, and I just want to point out that celebration is a much deeper thing than participating in these sort of rituals that are not perhaps advent, advent at its fullest. And I'm, I'm just going to read what I wrote here. When clear, full daylight breaks after long darkness, celebration is surely our impulse, and Advent leans into exactly this hope. But even the power of such reflexes aren't enough to take for granted and to depend on we can still manage to cloud the sunrise and blunt the keen exuberance of full celebration with lesser things. So Abram Heschel again says that people in our time are losing the power of celebration. Instead of celebrating, we seek to be amused or entertained. Celebration is an active state, an act of expressing reverence or appreciation. To be entertained is a passive state. 
It is to receive pleasure afforded by an amusing act or a spectacle. But celebration is a confrontation. It's giving attention to the transcendent meaning of one's actions. It's giving attention to God. So it's a confrontation. Celebration is a confrontation with all the lesser abstractions or the lesser distractions, the, with mere amusement. And celebration is actually a discipline. It's an admonishment. If you think about Sabbath and all the holy days, this is actually something that God tells us we need to do in order to be fully obedient to him and fully participate in his plans. As we have to celebrate. So, in view of that, and this idea of light, I think we need to recognize that we that sunlight is supposed to eclipse lesser lights. And I think for each of us, each of us, the remembrance of the advent of Jesus um, is something we need to let God allow to be made new every year. And each one of us are growing, hopefully, in what it means to walk with God. We're each moving through new territory every year and making progress. But there's this rhythm of Advent. There's this rhythm of familiarity that's very good for us. Um, and that we're not supposed to get bored of, but be able to measure the change that's occurred and that God has brought about in our lives and how he's involved us even further in his plans. And, and in that, in noticing and being able to measure those things, there's cause for celebration, real celebration that's beyond all the pressures of the season. So I just want to take that time to really, in prayer, let that light dawn in our hearts. So let's pray. It's amazing to think, God, that such a humble gathering could pull down your presence and you would promise to us that you're here where two or more are gathered in your name. Here we are on a Sunday morning. each of us in the midst of a cluttered life made more cluttered by holiday trappings. But we clear this space for you. This world is sitting in darkness. 
it's always a critical moment. We're always in need of dawn. But Father, you are at work. And we are not going to be dismayed by the darkness, but we are going to live in the light of your dawn and reflexively we respond to the light. We're designed for light. So Father, I pray that in our own hearts we would experience your visitation. I thank you, God, that historically you brought about an incredible moment, a turning point in history in the form of a child, fully God, fully man. And you visited humanity that sat in darkness, but you also promised to visit us individually in our darkness. So Father, for some of us who struggle with unbelief right now, some of us who are struggling with great sadness, some of us who are struggling with great risk in our near future. We pray that your light would dawn and your peace that passes all understanding would rest over our hearts and that we would be faithful to celebrate that dawning in its fullest sense and this advent would not be lost to us and we wouldn't just go through the motions and may this year allow us to see the progress that you have made in our lives and in our walk with you. Oh, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.